Part 1, Section 8 of The Dark Flower This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Dark Flower by John Galsworthy Section 8 Growing boy, overexertion in the morning, that was all. He was himself very quickly and walked up to bed without assistance. Rotten of him. Never was anyone more ashamed of his little weakness than this boy. Now that he was really a trifle indisposed, he simply could not bear the idea to have him for best man. The only bridesmaid now would be Sylvia. Sylvia Doon? Why, she was only a kid, and the memory of a little girl in a very short holland frock with flaxen hair, pretty blue eyes, and a face so fair that you could almost see through it came up before him. But that, of course, was six years ago. She would not still be in a frock that showed her knees, or wear beads, or be afraid of bulls that were never there. It was stupid being best man. They might have got some decent chap. And then he forgot all, for there was she, out on the terrace. In his rush to join her, he passed several of the English Grundies who stared at him askance. Indeed, his conduct of the night before might well have upset them, an Oxford man fainting in a hotel, something wrong there. And then when he reached her, he did find courage. Was it really moonlight? All moonlight, but it was warm. And when she did not answer that, he had within him just the same light, intoxicated feeling as after he had won a race at school. But now came a dreadful blow. His tutor's old guide had suddenly turned up after a climb with a party of Germans. The war horse had been aroused in Stormer. He wished to start that afternoon for a certain hut and go up a certain peak at dawn next day. But Lenin was not to go. Why not? Because of last night's faint, and because, forsooth, he was not some stupid thing they called an expert. As if, where she could go, he could. This was to treat him like a child. Of course he could go up this rotten mountain. It was because she did not care enough to take him. She did not think him man enough. Did she think that he could not climb what her husband could, and if it were dangerous, she ought not to be going, leaving him behind, that was simply cruel. But she only smiled, and he flung away from her, not having seen that all this grief of his only made her happy. And that afternoon they went off without him. What deep dark thoughts he had then, what passionate hatred of his own youth, what schemes he wove by which she might come back and find him gone up some mountain far more dangerous and fatiguing. If people did not think him fit to climb with, he would climb by himself. That, anyway, everyone admitted, was dangerous, and it would be her fault. She would be sorry then. He would get up and be off before dawn. He put his things out ready and filled his flask. The moonlight that evening was more wonderful than ever, the mountains like great ghosts of themselves, and she was up there at the hut among them. It was very long before he went to sleep, brooding over his injuries, 
intending not to sleep at all so as to be ready to be off at three o'clock. At nine o'clock he woke. His wrath was gone. He only felt restless and ashamed. If, instead of flying out, he had made the best of it, he could have gone with them as far as the hut, could have stayed the night there, and now he cursed himself for being such a fool and idiot. Some little of that idiocy he could, perhaps, retrieve. If he started for the hut at once, he might still be in time to meet them coming down and accompany them home. He swallowed his coffee and set off. He knew the way at first, then in woods lost it, recovered the right track again at last, but did not reach the hut till nearly two o'clock. Yes, the party had made the ascent that morning. They had been seen, been heard yodeling on the top. Gavis! Gavis! but they would not come down the same way. Oh, no. They would be going home down to the west and over the other paths. They would be back in house before the young hare himself. He heard this oddly almost with relief. Was it the long walk alone, or being up there so high, or simply that he was very hungry, or just these nice friendly folk in the hut and their young daughter with her fresh face, queer little black cloth sailor hat with long ribbons, velvet bodice, and perfect simple manners, or the sight of the little silvery dun cows thrusting their broad black noses against her hand. What was it that had taken away from him all this restless feeling, made him happy and content? He did not know that the newest thing always fascinates the puppy in its gambols, he sat a long while after lunch, trying to draw the little cows, watching the sun on the cheek of that pretty maiden, trying to talk to her in German. And when at last he said, Adieu, and she murmured, Kuss die Hand, adieu, there was quite a little pang in his heart, wonderful and queer as the heart of a man. For all that, as he neared home, he hastened till he was actually running, why had he stayed so long up there? She would be back. She would expect to see him. And that young beast of a violinist would be with her, perhaps instead. He reached the hotel just in time to rush up and dress and rush down to dinner. Ah, they were tired, no doubt, were resting in their rooms. He sat through dinner as best he could, got away before dessert and flew upstairs. For a minute he stood there, doubtful on which door should he knock. Then timidly he tapped on hers. No answer. He knocked loud on his tutor's door. No answer. They were not back then. Not back? What could that mean? Or could it be that they were both asleep? Once more he knocked on her door, then desperately turned the handle and took a flying glance. Empty, tidy, untouched, not back. He turned and ran downstairs again. All the guests were streaming out from dinner, and he became entangled with a group of English grundies discussing a climbing accident which had occurred in Switzerland. He listened, feeling suddenly quite sick. One of them, the short grey-bearded grundy with the rather whispering voice, said to him, All alone again tonight? The stormer's not back. Lenin did his best to answer, but something had closed his throat. He could only shake his head. They had a guide, I think, said the English grundy. 
This time Lennon managed to get out. Yes, sir. Stormer, I fancy, is quite an expert. And turning to the lady whom the young Grundys addressed as Madre, he added, To me the great charm of mountain climbing was always the freedom from people, the remoteness. The mother of the young Grundys, looking at Lennon with her half-closed eyes, answered, That to me would be the disadvantage. I always like to be mixing with my own kind. The grey-bearded Grundy murmured in a muffled voice. Dangerous thing, that, to say, in a hotel. And they went on talking, but of what Lenin no longer knew, lost in this sudden feeling of sick fear. In the presence of these English Grundies, so superior to all vulgar sensations, he could not give vent to his alarm. Already they viewed him as unsound for having fainted. Then he grasped that there had begun all round him a sort of luxurious speculation on what might have happened to the Stormers. The descent was very nasty. There was a particularly bad traverse. The Grandy, whose collar was not now crumpled, said he did not believe in women climbing. It was one of the things of the times that he most deplored. The mother of the young Grandies countered him at once. In practice, she agreed that they were out of place, but, theoretically, she could not see why they should not climb. An American standing near threw all into confusion by saying, he guessed, that it might be liable to develop their understandings. Lennon made for the front door. The moon had just come up over in the south, and exactly under it he could see the mountain. What visions he had then! He saw her lying dead saw himself climbing down in the moonlight and raising her still living but half-frozen form from some perilous ledge. Even that was almost better than this actuality of not knowing where she was or what had happened. People passed out into the moonlight, looking curiously at his set face staring so fixedly. One or two asked him if he were anxious, and he answered, Oh, no thanks. Soon, there would have to be a search party. How soon? He would. He must be. Of it. They should not stop him this time, and suddenly he thought, Ah, it is all because I stayed up there this afternoon talking to that girl, all because I forgot her. And then he heard a stir behind him. There they were, coming down the passage from a side door. She in front with her alpenstock and rucksack, smiling. Instinctively he recoiled behind some plants. They passed. Her sunburned face with its high cheekbones and its deep-set eyes looked so happy, smiling, tired, triumphant. Somehow he could not bear it, and when they were gone by, he stole out into the wood and threw himself down in shadow, burying his face and choking back a horrible, dry sobbing that would keep rising in his throat. End of section 8 Recording by David Angelo